Well, it is my pleasure and privilege this morning to uh, introduce our guest preacher, uh, Reverend Dr. Jerry Mead. And Jerry is a graduate of Covenant Seminary, and he obtained his Doctor of Ministry from Reformed Presbyterian Seminary. Um, he served faithfully as the pastor of Pilgrim Presbyterian Church in Martinsburg, West Virginia from 1990 through 2018. So we are excited to have him preach and fill the pulpit today. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you. Context in our, from our path, for our passage this morning in, in Isaiah 44 and 45. Interspersed throughout the uh, what might be called Isaiah's book of comfort from chapter 40 to the end are what have come to be called the servant songs, though there's no evidence any of them were ever sung. Uh, but uh, one of the most uh, familiar ones is probably in. Uh, Isaiah 52 and 53 of the suffering servant who bore our iniquities, carried our transgressions, was bruised for us um, so that we would not have to suffer such things at the hands of God for our sins. But there's a common theme that runs through this entire portion of, of Isaiah, uh, first appearing in chapter 42 in the person and work of an individual. One that God the Lord refers to as my servant. Um, Jesus even cites that as, as uh, Matthew records it in chapter 12, including the words, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. And with our 2020 hindsight of the New Testament, we understand that to be Jesus himself, the servant uh, of God. But it's revealed to Isaiah also that the Lord will deliver Israel by an unspecified one from the east. Yet the Lord who has performed and done this, Isaiah 41 verse 4, is behind it all. So it becomes clear, along with Israel being saved, the Lord's salvation will be extended and acclaimed to the ends of the earth. But here in chapters 44 and 45, the Lord speaks again of this figure. He says it's Cyrus, the heathen king of Persia, who in time will capture uh, Babylon, conquering that nation, and will free Judah, the children of Israel, to return to the promised land, as it's recorded in Second Chronicles, the, end, the final chapter there, and also the opening of the book of Ezra. Now, Cyrus isn't some detached, autonomous uh, agent of what's going on here. Uh, he emerge, when he emerges onto the international scene, he's under the Lord's sovereign control to fulfill the Lord's purposes, as one of our songs mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago. However, when the Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he speaks to this man as my anointed one, it does tend for some believers to raise concerns, if not consternation. A, a fellow in the, the um, church I serve as a part-time assistant pastor now uh, came up to me a few months ago and said, you know, I received a greeting card, a Christian greeting card, had a real nice verse on the inside. I don't recall, he didn't even recall the exact verse it was. He says, and I was very moved by that. So I thought I'd pull out my Bible and see exactly where this verse came from. 
and it referred to the pagan king of Persia, Cyrus. And I said, how can we do such a thing as that? What, don't those titles of, of shepherd and, and, uh, and uh, chosen one and servant and anointed, don't those belong to Jesus? Well, yes, they do belong to Jesus. However, the truth is, if God, in his most holy, wise, and powerful providence, can use control and govern all his creatures and all their actions, as the Shorter Catechism tells us, then he can use any of his creatures to fulfill his purposes to save his people. Understanding while he's ultimately interested in our spiritual salvation, he's also intimately involved in temporal deliverance and rescue of other things that we go through that we may not bring on ourselves. Such is the case of his use uh, of Cyrus. So this sermon text that we'll look at this morning, Isaiah 44, 24 through 45, 25, is, is composed of five messages. Well, I'm going to hone them down into one. But before we look into them and what it is that the Lord says over and over again, let's pray to God to open our minds and hearts to what his word has for us. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. So, Heavenly Father, we would ask now, as we do turn to your word, that you would nail it to our hearts, that you would impress it upon our minds, that we would continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who does all these things in submission to you and for our sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what the Lord says. I'm your Redeemer, the one who formed you. Reading from verse uh, 24 of chapter 44. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, her foundation shall be laid. Now this message begins by identifying the speaker. Not uh, quite a bit of greater intensity than the introduction I received this morning. This is your redeemer. The one who formed you. He's already, if you would look back in your Bibles, you'd see that he's already introduced himself this way in verses 21 and 22, where he's promised he won't forget his servant Israel. 
where he's promised to blot out your transgressions and sin, saving his ancient people as he saved us. Pledging his purposeful love to take and bear every burden that we have as if they were his. To pay the price that ransomed and redeemed us from our sins back into his gracious love. That pictured in the bloody sacrifices under the old covenant of unblemished sheep and cattle. But for us pictures as well the blood sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God came to take away the sins of the world, Jesus himself. This love for his people, he's formed from the womb as he did with uh, the children of Abraham, promised to Father Abraham. Many children, many generations, too numerous to count as a blessing on his faith. And as those who have been born again by the Spirit, who not only will enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus says in John 3 to Nicodemus, but also we enter his family as children, adopted through Christ, assured that nothing will ever touch his people, his family, except that is directed and allowed by the Lord God himself. Yet forming not just Israel, as he goes on here, as a nation, and reforming us in the image of Christ, he's formed everything. He's made it all. Emphasized in various ways throughout chapter 40 of Isaiah and on as a cre uh, the creator, where he created, he made, he formed. Isaiah emphasizes how important this is, how basic this is to our relationship with God. He's done, he's the one alone who stretched out the heavens and earth all by himself. No help from anyone. A declaration of God's creative power in itself. Joining together then this truth of the Redeemer to that of the Creator, uh, showing us our and the ancient believers' origins as well as God's commitment to us, are the basis for listening with confidence to his continuing oversight of them and all their affairs as he does with us. False prophets, mentioned here, didn't consider the Creator when they made their prophecies, when they gave their signs. So it's not surprising that he frustrated them showing them to be liars. The diviners that are mentioned were no better at using their material methods to provide um, sacred information than, the, pro than the, uh, the false prophets were in sharing it. These are not wise men. They may be knowledgeable, but they're not wise. An important thing to understand, and I don't think this will be a stretch. It's not a stretch for me, so I'm sure it won't be a stretch for you. Knowledge is what you know. 
Good night, everybody. We can, we can end on that. No, knowledge, is what, but there's something more important that God gives us. Wisdom. To know what to do with what you know. These men were knowledgeable, but not wise in the things of God. And he then literally drove them mad, making a mockery of their declarations. But on the contrary, the Lord confirms his own, the word of his servants, and fulfills the command of his messengers, Isaiah, all the prophets, through John the Baptist, through Jesus himself speaking in his office as a prophet. What was said in Isaiah 41, the word of God stand forever, is now applied to the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life, as the confession tells us. Part of God's purpose, then, was Jerusalem's future, the city of God, the capital of the nation. The message to her, here in verse 25, is that she's going to be restored. She'll be inhabited again, rebuilt, like likewise the cities of Judah actually rebuilt, ruins raised up, with allusions to other mighty acts on his part. This is the God who dried up the deep waters after the universal flood. This is the God who divided the Red Sea so the people could make their escape from Egypt, who divided the Jordan River, held the waters up there for the entrance into the Promised Land. This is the power of God at work. And this second exodus from Babylon back to Judah, the return from exile is going to involve similar intervention on behalf of his people. As this first message then moves towards its climax, we see that the identity of the coming deliverer is revealed to be that man, Cyrus, the pagan king of Persia. In a later passage dealing with Cyrus, in, in chapter 46, verse 20 and 21, God will declare, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Nathan, as Isaiah does here with Cyrus, in this 8th century B.C. prophecy, unusual, to say the least, but it's not unprecedented. A named prophet in 1 Kings 13 predicted the rise of a king named Josiah in 2 Kings 21. As Herod, who was curious when the wise men from the east assembled all the chief and assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people to inquire who where this Christ was to be born and in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written in the prophet referring to Micah. So when the Persian king issued his 538 BC decree allowing Jewish exiles to return home, it's like 
that Isaiah had mentioned him several hundred years. Here Cyrus is called my shepherd. It's a term used in the Near East of royalty from oh, as early as 2300 BC. It's regularly employed in this way in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 5 and Jeremiah 23. He's going to bring the Lord's good pleasure, uh, his purpose, to fulfillment. That good pleasure and purpose, again, focused on Jerusalem. And Cyrus is the one who's going to pro proclaim, go back home, build the city, lay the foundation of your temple, live your lives before your God. Throughout the Cyrus poems, if we might call them that, in chapter 44 and 45, don't let the, the, the controversy regarding the heathen conqueror obscure the declaration of verse 24. I'm God. I'm the Lord who formed you. And I'll use who I want to fulfill my purposes. So it goes beyond asserting, really though, the power of God. It isn't merely the equivalent of him saying, I'm, I'm your master, when he calls himself the Lord. The combination of the reality of God's active involvement in shaping the world's diversity in general and the history of his people in particular is involved here. And, and the Lord's commitment to his people and presence with us stretch across our past, our present, where we are now, and our future yet to come. As for those who do God's will and God loves, he works all things according to what is good. We should live with the perception of faith that the whole sweep of human history, everything that has ever happened or will is under God's control. And it's under God's control for our benefits. And it's in Jesus, whose name it means God saves, this function of that name finds its complete fulfillment. A fact attested to by Jesus himself, who refers to himself as the great I Am. The same name that the Lord had given himself in Exodus. And revealed himself throughout uh, his speaking to his people through Moses. However, we're not done with Cyrus. As the second message begins in chapter 45 at verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to lose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, their gates may, be, may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you 
though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from, and, and from the west that there, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with me, with him who formed him. A pot among earthen posts. Does the clay say to the him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? And to a woman, with what are you in labor? This is what the Lord says. I am the Lord and there is no other. Unlike the idols of the pagans, he is God who moves the course of nations, yet on the other hand, he reduces rulers to nothing, while also raising up someone like Cyrus. In this way, God also uses second causes. He does things by himself, but he, he uses other things to accomplish his purposes as well. Another important point from the confession of faith the surprising thing is that Cyrus is called the Lord's anointed, as we said. You may know the background of this. I mean, it's, it's a very important word for us as believers that, that the Hebrew word Meshach, that we know as Messiah, that becomes Christos in the Greek and Christ in, uh, in the New Testament that way, referring, uh, the title referring to our Savior. But these things, uh, there's more to it than that when we talk about such as this. Um, the Hebrew word was applied to kings of Israel. It was applied to uh, the Old Covenant priest. And the Greek, the Christ, the Christ, the anointed ones, is replied to New Testament saints. We read carefully. Three main elements were involved here. There's a declaration of appointment, as in Psalm 2 where God speaks to the Lord's anointed. There's a recognition of a close association with God, with the person anointed that he calls in Psalm 2, my son. And there's an implied communication of something to the person concerned, where he says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Then what does this reference have to do with Cyrus? What is it implied for him? Naming Cyrus isn't so surprising as getting him, or giving him a foreign king, the title reserved for the Davidic dynasty. Tasked with ruling the nations and building the temple. The Lord declares he's grasped Cyrus by the right hand a phrase again used of Israel. And then the Lord directly addresses Cyrus himself in verses 2 and through 7 with a description of his work, stressing the Lord is the one who will, in fact, go before Cyrus, who will level things, who will, uh, who will break through things, who will cut through things so that his purposes will be accomplished. 
All impediments, both natural, the exalted places, the mountains, or man-made, bronze doors, iron gates, will be removed. So, as not to slow Cyrus's progress. Treasures hidden away in darkness, in secret places, referring to places where those diviners and soothsayers would gather in caves and make their predictions and prophecies that wouldn't come to pass anyway, including the wealth of the kings of the palace and God's temple. They were taken to Babylon, and now Cyrus will see that they're returned with the people to Judah. The Lord's ultimate aim is that Cyrus may know that I am the Lord. You may not know me. That's who I am. I've revealed myself to my people. They know who I am. They know what I can do. And I've got news for you, Cyrus. I'm going to do it through you. But I've got news for my people. I'm going to do it through him. The Lord's purpose is using Cyrus is related back to Israel itself because the object or benefit of all that's going to happen is God's people. And this, like all of Scripture from the Old Testament, is there for us to learn. God can do anything He wants with whomever He wants for our benefit. A power that can move even heathen kings in the service of God's kingdom. The same power that passes us from darkness to light. The power that moves us from death to life. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power through God's spirit that strengthens us in our inner being and so much more. This is the power that used Cyrus. Though he wasn't a true believer. To Cyrus, the Lord repeats in verses 5 and 6, as we already noted, his own being and uniqueness. A claim that Moses had made many years before that in Deuteronomy. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Yet Cyrus is being prepared by the Lord for the assigned task. In spite of such demonstrations of divine power, he won't really love the Lord. We don't know that he ever did really know the Lord in a personal, intimate way, and more importantly, the Lord knew him that way. However, the acknowledgement will ultimately come from the Gentile nations. An important strand in God's promises to Abraham to bless the nations through his seed, to bless us. Cyrus's call, the consequences of his work, was partial fulfillment of that purpose. That second exodus that I referred to before was integral in the ultimate vision of the salvation of the Gentiles. Blessings to the nations and to others, whoever they may be, involves a recognition of the Lord God and Redeemer.
So if you recognize God, as I said, as your Lord and Redeemer, you need to realize your call by him to new life in Christ, your salvation, that is, and you also need to recognize your consequent good work which God has prepared beforehand for you to do. If he's touched you, how do you reach out and touch someone else? If he's done a good work in you, what good works has he prepared for you to do for others? Joining his claim of creational power to his claim of providential control, God again declares, I am the Lord who does all things. Nothing happens outside his command. And we may be inclined to respond with what seems to be in verses, uh, verse 8, uh, salvation and righteousness. But really when we think about it, uh, given the church's history of using God's word in our hymns and spiritual songs, it's more to it than that. There's this added declaration, I the Lord have created it. It's still a part of the Lord's message, which will continue throughout here into verses 9 and 10 and beyond. The background is probably the way many in Israel questioned God using Cyrus to carry out his purposes. When he says, woe to you who strive with him who formed you and defies uh, derides, excuse me, father and mother. The nation could make a legal charge against God. That's the nature of a covenant. God, you promised that you would do this, and now we ask you to fulfill it. It's at least the way man versus, works with man. But what right does a pot have to call out its maker? Or a child with its parents over its conception and birth. You see, this isn't just about power. Isaiah and Paul, who uses the same illustration uh, in one of his letters, are both talking about authority, which is, is tied to God's character. If God had the authority to create innocent beings and then force them to perform wickedness and then punish them for that wickedness, he would violate his own holiness and justice because God never makes us sin. He does have the authority to appoint sinful man to dishonor, as the potter does with a piece of clay for its ultimate end. R.C. Sproul wrote in one of his commentaries, once I, uh, once I sin against God, he can dispose of me any way he wants. He may use my punishment for his glory. He may harden my heart or bring dis uh, disaster to my life. But the reason he has this authority is because it's, with, it's within the scope of his character. So you see, God is sovereign and is able to carry out his purposes without our agreement, without our will, without our understanding. 
his purposes for his people, whether it's ancient Israel or whether it's those of us who are in Christ. And all of these things come from his love and compassion. The why of moral evil, the why of sin, aren't explained in Scripture, apart from existing in uh, Satan's personality and in our fallen human condition. Maybe the irrationality of it all makes explanation of sin meaningless. However, in Scripture, it's emphatically asserted God is in complete control once over all events in heaven and on earth. He isn't the initiator of wrongdoing. He's in no way to blame for the willing choices of morally responsible individuals. John tells us in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 5, Chapter, yeah, one five. The apostle he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What's more, God tempts no one, James writes. Even so, there's no doubt God governs and uses sinful acts of mankind to accomplish his purposes. As Joseph said of his brothers in Genesis fifty, what you intended for evil, God meant for good, to the saving of many people. And don't forget, this was true in the case of Christ. Crucified and killed at the hands of men, as Peter preaches at Pentecost, because God had determined it to be so. They were doing what God had predestined. So be careful you don't set to one side any scripture as you wrestle with any riddle of Scripture. You see, it's presumptuous to seek to call the Lord to account and to demand His salvation correspond to our preconceptions. You can ask questions of God, but never question God. Which leads us to the third short message, beginning in, in chapter 45 at verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed you, ask me for things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on, on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. This is what the Lord says. Ask me of things to come. Want to ask me about it. The Lord identifies himself again as the Holy One of Israel who formed them. We've been down that road before. Licking the repeated themes of his role as creator and his actions as providing Cyrus to deliver his people. His creating role is a sign of the right to govern our actions. I can't emphasize it enough because Isaiah doesn't emphasize it too much. Over and over again. The 
character of God in this way. But then the thought returns to Cyrus, who the Lord has stirred up in righteousness and will make all his ways level. Notice it's in righteousness the Lord kept his covenant promises that making Cyrus's work easy, making Cyrus do the right thing, which we can understand as righteousness, but only if it's what the Lord... So, so I, Cyrus does the right thing in the Lord's righteousness. Rebuilding Jerusalem. Sending back those the Lord calls as exiles. After all, the Lord is the one who banished him in the first place. And so now he's able to bring them back as the one who is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of his own armies. The Lord is free in what he resolves and does. And his wisdom has access to all the facts that, and consequences of any proposal. And his control doesn't subvert human responsibility. We're still responsible for our own actions. What if the people, the exiles and captives in Babylon had said, I'm not going home, it's too nice here. Where would we be? Yes, a hypothetical question. No doubt, God would still work his plan as he sees fit. But that's where we're left to consider our own actions and our own decisions in the face of what God tells us we should do. His ways overthrow our own preconceived notions. Whether in using a heathen emperor to release his people, or even using the chief persecutor of the early church, a man by the name of Saul, to become the greatest preacher of the early Christian church in the person of Paul. This introduces a fourth brief message, taking the thought to another step forward in chapter 45 from verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, <coughs> excuse me, savingly. Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded, that makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, who shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. This is what the Lord says. I am my people's savior. Now, the Egyptians, the Cushites, the Sabians, uh, apparently at some point... All these ones representing Israel's enemies are going to come under Israel's authority. Now, it's not clear as whether they come um, because they're enforced into surrender or whether they, uh, whether they submit voluntarily. In either case... Their actions will include bowing low in deference, pleading their case, acknowledging God is with his people. 
In fact, in confessing there is no other God, they admit Israel's salvation while mourning their own. What does Paul write? Uh, mourning their own condemnation, excuse me. Remember what Paul writes in Philippians 2. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the difference between believers who are assured they never will suffer shame since Christ has suffered for us and so saved us with an everlasting salvation, and the unbeliever, those who aren't just the enemies of God's people, but the enemies of God himself. They'll acknowledge God. They'll proclaim there is a God. Will no good for, will do no good for their salvation. The final message, then, declared by the Lord, depicts Gentiles coming voluntarily and, become, and bowing before him. Verse 18 to the end of the chat. For thus says the Lord who created the heaven, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabitable. I am the Lord, there is no other. I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I am the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who, would, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the earth, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out to write in righteousness a word that shall not return. To, the, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. We'll get it later. He began it. The Lord says, turn to me and be saved. Turn to me and be saved. Not to Cyrus. Not to any other government or government authority. Turn to me and be saved. He repeats the affirmation of his creating power, creative power and ability. In verse 18. And this repeated emphasis that touched on several times already. On, on the creation is because it's a doctrine suffering that affects every aspect of life. And it's suffering today. The teaching of creation. We breathe created air. We walk on created ground. We look as believers, as Christians, for the new creation to come. Creation teaches us about our origins. It calls us to trust God and his word. Creation teaches us we are accountable. It's the sphere uh, in which we commune and worship God. 
God revealed his glory in his creation. And as I said, the biblical account is under attack these days. But if it's too difficult to believe God created all things out of nothing in six days, what about the more difficult doctrines the Bible teaches? For Christ, there's the incarnation, submission to his Father's will, there's the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation to glory. Got a problem with those? I mean, if you can't think that God created everything around us, how tough is it to understand? Well, how about for us what the Bible teaches? Through Christ, our effective calling, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, the faith, repentance, and the works that moves us in that direction, not saving us, but resulting from the fact we are saved. You see, in this created world, God has unfolded the drama of redemption. That's why he can say, I'm the redeemer who formed you. He doesn't do it in secret. Doesn't, doesn't close himself in darkness. On the contrary, Isaiah invited in chapter 2, verse 3, the people to walk in the Lord's light. Insisted in 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shine. And will implore in chapter 60, verse 1, arise, a shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Confirmed again by Jesus' own saying, I am the light of the world. Here, between the truth and righteousness, as the moral integrity and uprightness of the Lord's prophecies over against those pagan occult practices of Israel, ancient and now those who are children of Israel, prospect of the pagan world when faith takes us into that family where we're invited to assemble ourselves and come draw near together you survivors of the nations even though the pagan mindset still binds people together binds us to idols that can't save and continues to argue against God he insists there is no other God besides me a righteous God, a Savior. There is none beside me. Calling on everyone, turn to me and be saved. Turn from your idols, whether it's your own personality or your possessions or your place in life, as others might see you. Give them up. Only then will you find salvation in God. The appeal is to all Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. Though individualization will follow, finding salvation with the Lord is assured by the fact it is impossible for God to lie, as Hebrews tells us. And then he closes in 24 through 25. As he repeats later in chapter 46, the Lord's righteousness and our human righteousness, our willingness and our ability to do what is right, 
intersect, revealed in, in remaining true to his covenant commitment to people who are his, that he's undertaking on our behalf because we are in need of salvation from sin. He's done it. That's who we are. That's who he is. He knows it. It's no surprise. So he brings us back from the consequences of our rebellion. He sees us as clothed in Christ's righteousness and so accepted by him. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever because so is God the Father. God is both the one we can't see, yet openly declares his truth, since his glory is beyond our capacity to comprehend. He tells us what we can't see. But that doesn't mean we can't know him for that reason. He delights to share himself and to show himself in ways suited to our capacity. In words we can understand. In a spirit moving in, a, in, in our hearts that takes us in a direction we don't want to go as sinners. But above all else, that revelation takes place in Jesus Christ, who shows the Father's name to us the Father has given to him. Turn to God and be saved. There is no other. Let's pray. Please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for opening minds and hearts that we might hear this word, but not only hear, but listen carefully to what you say, that we might know your grace your mercy, your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.